Welcome to Faith Sermons and Studies with Pastor Joe DeVitro. Remember, we were talking about if the church is going to transform the world, then we must be united in our love for Christ and our love for one another. Those two are just given things in the Bible. Anything short of our loving Christ and loving others is going to end up in defeat. It's going to end up with falling short of what God's expectation is for His people and for His church. And we're going to look at Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. And um, let's recap real quick where we were to get to where we are. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the fact that God has created every single person as his own masterpiece. We're all made in what? The image of God. That means saved people are made in the image of God and lost people are made in the image of God. So we wrestle not today against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So people are not the problem in the world today. The problem is evil in the world today. And there are people who do evil, but they're still made in the image of God. And we as people made in the image of God are to reach out to them and express our love towards them and our desire to see them find the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world is drawn to love and action. So when we are a masterpiece, remember the difference between wallpaper and a work of art, right? A work of art is a one-of-a-kind masterpiece, but wallpaper is a one-of-a-kind masterpiece copied over, over, and over, over, and over, and over, and over again so that it loses its significance. It loses its appeal. So we'll take a work of art and put it all over walls today and call it wallpaper. But if it's a one-of-a-kind masterpiece, it gets hung on a wall too, but what wall does it get hung on? A wall of a museum where it can be observed and respected for the work that it is. God has made each of us a one-of-a-kind masterpiece. Second, last week, we looked at the fact that when we are all together different, we are greater than the sum of our parts. In other words, God has made each of us different. He's given each of us gifts, each of us abilities, each of us talents, interests, passions, and they can all be used to reflect back to Jesus Christ and the world around us. They can be used for God's glory and the benefit of others. So when we come together as a community and we're each doing our part, we become greater than the sum of our individual parts because we become an unstoppable force in the world. Try to stop the church from going forward. It's not going to happen because it's so diverse. It's, it's all over the place. So this week, I want us to take a look at the biggest, what I believe is the biggest roadblock to seeing community in the church become one. What is the biggest factor? And I would argue it's also the biggest, one of the biggest factors that is a problem in our family relationships today, whether it be mothers and, and fathers with their kids or whether it be siblings with siblings. Uh, it's one of the biggest issues we have in workplace today. Um, and it's found in Ephesians chapter four. And we're gonna look at that this morning because the biggest roadblock to seeing community of one become a reality is... Well, let's, let's read it together. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. It says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy 
of the calling in which you have been called. How many of you uh, growing up were followers of music? You can admit it. I know you got a sinful past. Don't, don't act like you don't. I know it's out there. There's Beatle lovers in here that love the Beatles at one time. Some of you grew up on Guns N' Roses. Some of you grew up on the police, right? Backstreet Boys for some of you uh, middle-aged people, right? And then the more reality millennial group, you, you guys had One Direction and the Jonas Brothers, right? And some of you old folk are like, ah, who, what? You know what every group I just mentioned to you, every one of them has something in common. You know what it is? They all broke up. Think about it. The Beatles broke up. I forgot to mention Led Zeppelin and the Eagles. They all broke up. Uh, Guns N' Roses broke up. The Police broke up. Backstreet Boys in the 90s broke up. More recently, One Direction and the Jonas Brothers broke up. And it's discouraging and disappointing when people break up, isn't it? When you see division, it's, it, it, it kind of bums you out a little bit. Um, maybe you don't relate to music. So let me, get, let, let, let me reel it in a little more. Right? Fishing openers next week. Some of you are going to be gone next week because you're fishing. God will judge you. But um, Just kidding. I like fishing too. But it's discouraging, disappointing when things break up. And... Um, it's much worse, though, when it's personal, right? Isn't it much worse when it's a personal breakup? Remember back in high school, some of you had breakups that you would never get over? I'm glad you did. <laughs> I'm glad you got over it. But what about when your parents divorce? That's kind of hard. I've been there. I know what that one's like. What about when your children get a divorce? What about your divorce? What about friendships ending? What about siblings who don't get along? On Mother's Day, there's some moms that wish they could get their whole family together, but it's not worth the 4th of July, right? And, they, and there's siblings who don't get along, and there's parents, or there's kids who fight over the parents' inheritance. I mean, we live in a day in which kids are fighting over inheritances of parents who are still alive. Families fractured over things that don't matter. Political, ideological differences. That doesn't divide today, right? I mean, we didn't see it this last week, just in the politics of the week. Or mask or no mask. And, and all these things that are trying to divide us today. They're there. We've all seen it. We hate it when things that we've grown up with or that we love, things we depend on, things that we thought would last forever, break up. And oftentimes, when we're in the middle of it, we feel like those institutions or those relationships come crashing down around us in a sudden way, don't we? I mean, we're shocked to hear somebody's going to get a divorce. But most of the time, if we take a couple steps back and we look at the situation objectively, what do we all know? There's been problems for a long time. You know, those that live out in California know what fault lines are. People in Oklahoma know what fault lines are. People in Minnesota, do we know what fault lines are? I don't think we have a clue what a fault line is, right? Uh, a fault line is when they're at fault and I'm not. That's what we view fault lines as, right? But fault lines are hidden cracks in substrate of earth 
that when a tectonic shift takes place, they overlap one another or slam into one another, buckle, and then move apart. And when they move apart, what happens? What do we call it? An earthquake. And you get a massive crack in the earth that opens up. And we think it's catastrophic. And we think it just happened in a moment. But what's the reality? For a long time, those plates have been moving. And all of a sudden, they finally come together. And we see the outward flow of something that's been happening for a long time. And when it comes to relationships and unity and having the mind of Christ, almost always you will see that there have been fault lines below the surface long before the blow up that happens. There's things that were undealt with, things that were left festering, things that were there already that were not dealt with in a right way or at all that caused the earthquake to happen. For the Beatles, they didn't break up overnight. There was a lot of frustration and animosity and just flat out craziness of being the biggest band in the world. And it, the pressures pushed on them. And finally, the two tectonic plates hit together. And what happened? Boom. They break up. And the whole world is shocked. They weren't. Your parents divorce or a divorce that wasn't all of a sudden felt like it should last forever, all of a sudden isn't. There's, there's pressures and all of a sudden it breaks. The falling out you have with a brother or an aunt or, or your parents. If we're honest, we can see things were going on for a long time. And our little hurts, our little wounds here and there, things said in the past, things unsaid in the past, that fault line finally ruptures. In geological terms, a fault line is a fracture along which the crust has moved. The seismic waves are generated when two sides of the fault rapidly slip past each other. And for most earthquakes, the faults do not break the surface. So the faults can be seen, quote unquote, only through analyzing of seismic waves. And that's what we have scientists that just measure those things all the time, don't we? Fault lines are often invisible until the earthquake strikes. And then everything falls apart. So what does any of this have to do with being a community of one? Well, I would argue it has everything to do with it. I would argue it has everything to do with it. And that's because of this. If we're going to be a community of Jesus followers, living in a world as community of one, then we need to realize that fault lines happen because we're broken and imperfect people doing life with broken and imperfect people. Right? What do broken and imperfect people do? They make mistakes. They sin. They, they don't do everything right all the time. They're imperfect. And yes, even in the church, in fact, fault lines are the single biggest reason most churches small c, and the church, big C, in North America are failing to have an impact on the world around them. You see, these fault lines are the single biggest reason the church in America fails to live as a community of one. There's all these underlying things. There's all these little cracks, all these little areas in which we don't deal with things. So they sit there and fester. And as they fester, they get agitated. Let me, let me share it with you this way. A, 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 a divided church is a defeated church. If Satan can divide a church, it's defeated. 
What are some of the things in recent history Satan has used to divide the church? Well, I could ask you a couple political questions real quick, right? You know what they are. Are you a Democrat or Republican? They're both broke. They're both full of messed up, fallen people. Neither one of them is going to get you to Jesus if you follow their platforms. Moralistic, if you're into the moralistic therapeutic deism aspect, uh, maybe one is more moralistic than another, but maybe not. Maybe they're both corrupt in their own ways. How about mask or no mask? Vax or no vax? Abortion or not abortion? Special rights or no special rights? You say, Pastor Joe, you're hitting all the political stuff. Yeah! Guess what's dividing our churches today? Same stuff. Guess what's dividing families today? Same stuff. And should it? I mean, the American government is the only government that is God-ordained. Not. Right? Our government was founded on Judeo-Christian values, but the further we move away from Judeo-Christian values, what happens? We become more like the world. We become more fallen. We become more in need of a rescue. And a divided church is a, is a defeated church. This means that we must be very intentional about preserving future and healing current fault lines that are inside our churches today. That includes our church. That includes our personal lives. That includes our family dynamics. We need to be intentional about protecting and, and working through these things. We must be intentional about healing and preventing future lines from forming. I've got some good news, though. Here's the good news. This is not a new problem. This is a problem that Ephesians talks a lot about. This is a problem that's been there for over 2,000 years and even longer if you look in your Old Testament. The Apostle Paul addresses this very thing in a letter to the community of followers who are in Ephesus. The Ephesians letter is written to a Jesus community made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And many times we overlook this when we look at this passage because in our, in our 2022 church mentality, we want to look for the things that directly apply to church, right? We, we want to see the church and what can the church do and what should the church be doing? And sometimes we miss the history lessons that the Bible teaches us. Are there any two more diverse cultures than Gentiles and Jews? Let, let's contrast it a little bit. Let's look at the Gentiles. What were the Gentiles known for from a Jewish standpoint? Well, the Gentiles don't have the law, so what's that automatically make them? Right? Gentiles worship pagan gods. This is bad. Gentiles practice all kinds of sexual immorality. God said something about that, didn't he? So did the Jew, how are they viewing a Gentile to this point? Dirty dogs, right? Gentiles live wild lives, drunkenness, orgies, lying to get ahead in business, cheating others, anger, brawling, gossiping, slandering. This is a good group of guys. This is how the Jews viewed the Gentiles. They're unclean, unworthy, not worth evangelizing. But let's flip the tables. How did the Gentiles view the Jews? The Jews are weak. They're a conquered people. 
Rome invaded them and they're still stuck under Rome. They haven't recovered from it. They're, complain they're complaining people who are arrogant, distasteful, and largely unlikable. Man, can't you see these two coexisting in church together? These, the, these two groups? The Jews were standoffish. They didn't accept or even like other groups. Plus they had weird religious ideas and they're a little bit judgy. Right? I don't think much has changed in 2,000 years. Um, if we just substituted lost and saved, you, you might end up with the same sort of descriptions. Right? So in Ephesians here, this church is struggling with some cultural dynamics where there are complete opposites at play. Politically, culturally. I mean, look at that. You can't be any more different in these two people groups than what you see. But here's the thing. This is what's amazing. Amazingly, through Christ, these two people groups came together as followers of Jesus in one community. How'd they do it? How did the Gentile get over their secularness? And how did the Jews get over their religiosity? And how did they come together as one powerful church in the Ephesian world? How'd they do it? Well, let's check it out together because the verses in front of us today are going to tell us because much of the letter to this community of Jesus followers is aimed at telling the Jews that Jesus called the Gentiles to be part of the family of God and telling the Gentiles that they too have been adopted into the family of God. And Paul spends a good part of this letter telling them both that being part of this family means you can't live like you did before. You have to change. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, then you have to come together in a community. So let's read these verses together. Let's do some responsive reading. I'll let you read the first uh, screen. I'll read the next one, and we'll, we'll go back and forth. So let's start together. I, therefore... With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love... There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Let's read this one together. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What's a word you see repeated there? All, 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 all right? What does all mean? Don't you love words that define themselves? All means all. All-inclusive. Paul is writing this letter, by the way, from prison. He's in prison because of his commitment to Jesus Christ and his way of life. And Jesus is calling his followers, and Paul is calling followers of Christ, to live all in for Jesus Christ. All in. As a prisoner for living He's a prisoner for living a life modeled after Jesus, rooted in the faith of Jesus. And Paul is calling these two different groups who both have faith in Jesus and they want to live like Jesus to do what together? All things together. Do it all together. Whether it is your, 
your, your, your cultural side, whether it's your political side, you know what, be all inclusive here. Paul is calling on them to heal the fault lines in their community. Look where you guys live, heal it inside the church, and when you heal it inside the church, then go outside the church and heal your community. Be an impact on the people around you. It's almost like Paul saying, if I, can't go to pri- if I can go to prison because of my faith in Jesus Christ and for imitating Jesus that is radically different from the world around me, then surely you can work out your natural fault lines and actually protect the name of Jesus Christ and promote a community of one. Let me, let me show you some further notes here from the Ephesians passage. He says, I urge you, this is not a small request. No suggestion made in passing. This is, this is Paul begging or almost demanding that they live a life worthy of what? Your calling. We talked about how God created you a one-of-a-kind masterpiece. We talked about how God has equipped each of us with different skills, different abilities, different... You are all professionals in some area. God has gifted you in an area that you're a professional in. And he expects and wants you to use that talent, not just in the secular world, but in the church as well. He wants you to use your abilities to further his ministry. He says, live a life worthy of your calling. You're a masterpiece. Act like it. Live up to the calling and the design that God has given you. And then he says this, make every effort to keep unity. Some translations say this, be eager for unity. Look forward to it. Look for ways to foster it. Make every effort to keep it. So how do we make every effort to keep our unity? How do you do that? Well, there's a couple ways. Number one, humility. Consider others before yourself. Right? Consider others before you. This, this is self-explanatory. But that's what humility literally means in the Bible. Consider others before yourself. How about gentleness, kindness, consideration, meekness? Not forcing your will your opinion, or desires on others. Well, unless you think the way I think, then you're wrong. Really? Unless, what what if God treated us that way? Unless you think as I think, you know what? You don't have a chance. You don't have a chance. It's not forcing your will, your opinion, or desires on others. It's being kind to who? Be ye kind one towards another, tenderhearted. What? What? Forgiving one another, even as uh, God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you? Patient. Man, our culture can learn from this one, couldn't it? Patient, forbearance, long-suffering. Slowness to avenge and wrongs. Well, if you knew what they did to me, they deserve. Bearing with one another. Compassion. Help carries other burdens. And then do all this out of love. These are all themes of the book of Ephesians. So if you want to heal your current fall lines and prevent future ones, then you have to be intentional. You have to do the hard work of being humble, gentle, patient, bearing one another's burdens. To put it another way, we have to say it this way. To prevent fault lines in our relationships, we must be intentional about building unity. Isn't it interesting that you can go in our culture today and you can go to a restaurant or you can go to a store or you can be helped by somebody. It isn't amazing how fast you can pick out everything wrong in a restaurant. Everything wrong in a store. 
Everything wrong with how the waiters do things, everything wrong in how they do the caching process or the drive-through, and you know, all of us become restaurant experts in a moment. How many times do we walk into a restaurant or a, a store or a building and we're like, wow, look how they made this place. This is great. Why is it we're not gravitated towards the positive? We're gravitated towards what? The negative. Um, we, we are pulled. So if, if we're going to be different, then we have to be intentional about being different. Because we live in a very critical world. We live in a, in a world that is very disjointed, very messed up. It's, it's a world that's cursed. To prevent fall lines in our relationships, we must be intentional about building unity. And that's the point. To prevent fault lines, our relationships, we must be intentional about this. So here's the question. How do we become intentional about building unity? How do you do that? What does that mean? Wouldn't it be nice if God told us what that meant? Well, let's look at the first point. On a personal level, consider others before yourself. Look no further than Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition. That'd be enough for this verse, wouldn't it? Do nothing for selfish ambition, period. But he goes on. Do nothing for selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than who? That's a tough pill to swallow in American culture. I, I kind of like me, right? Remember a few weeks ago we said this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. What does that mean? Partisanship. Jockeying for a position. Campaigning. Manipulating to get your way. That doesn't happen in America, does it? <clears throat> Do nothing out of vain conceit. What does vain conceit mean? It means thinking of yourself highly or thinking of yourself as not just right, but more than right. Making sure our pride doesn't get hurt. You know what? For, especially for guys in here, you know one of the best things that could happen to us is? We get our pride hurt. Because when guys get the pride hurt, what does it create? Humility. Humility. Well, go back to point one. Look at, look at the verse again. Do nothing out of selfish conceit, but in what? There it is. Get your pride out of the way. Get over yourself. Be real. Be a real person. Do nothing for yourself. Don't be conceit. Don't manipulate it. But in humility, count others more significant than ourselves. So instead of asking this question, what do I want? Instead, we should ask, what do they need? Do you see a difference there? If I get myself out of the way, I get my manipulation out of the way, I get myself and my wants out of the way, my pride, and I actually allow God to work through me, then I'm looking for opportunities to minister, right? And as I look for opportunities to minister, if I'm asking, what do I want? Well, I really don't want to help anybody. I want to sit in my lazy boy and I want to watch TV and I don't want to worry about any of the world's problems, right? After all, I'm retired or after all, I've done this stuff all my, or after all, I'm, I, I've worked a hard day at work or I've dealt with people problems all day long at work. The last thing I want to do when I get home is deal with people problems. But you know, if we're going to be about the work of Christ, that involves people. And if you get involved in people's lives, guess what they have? problems so we need to get our own pride out of the way and we need to get back into thinking the way that god thinks 
Jesus was not self-absorbed, was he? Jesus was not a selfish person. He considered others more important than himself, and he's challenging us to do the same in the Philippians writing here. So we need to ask, what do they need? When you begin to ask that, guess what you begin to find? The needs. You know what two of the greatest needs are in our culture today? Forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation. People have been holding on to bitterness for decades. It amazes me how long people can be bitter who are Christians. Who are Christians and they're bitter. Well, I was wrong. Maybe God allowed that to happen in your life for a reason. Maybe you got in your own way and your own pride got in the way. Maybe there's something else going on in somebody else's life and God allowed you to go through a trial so you could relate to them later on. You have no idea what God's trying to accomplish in your personal life in a long-term way, but he does. And what looks like a problem today is a blessing down the road for somebody else. And if we look at it from a selfish angle and say, oh, woe is me, and ah, oh, God is just, oh, this and all that, we miss out on one of the greatest opportunities to minister in a world with, with resources that you have and nobody else has. Experience that you've gone through, you have ministries. One of my favorite things to do when I, when I was younger in ministry was listen to people, especially younger kids or, or teenagers, who are going through their parents divorcing and they don't know that my parents divorced and would listen to them tell me all their sob story and listen to, listening to them tell me that I have no idea what they're going through and, and you know, you let them go for a little while, right? All you have been there, if you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. They're telling you about all these problems like you've never experienced a problem in your life. You never had a hard time in your life. And then there comes that moment, right? That moment that the table turns. And you're like, so are you done? Now listen to this story. And you can utilize the experiences of your past in a ministry to help somebody else get, get from where they are to where God wants them to be. One of the reasons we feel like or we see disunity in our families in our workplaces, in our social, political interactions, and in our churches, is that most American Christians are worldly today. We don't live differently from the world. We live just like the world. And when Christians live just like the world, when two are alike, what's not needed? The other one. When two people are alike, one's not needed. It's our differences. Think about your own marriage. You fight where you're similar. Where you both are strong, that's where your conflict comes. But where you're opposites, you tend to yield to the other person. Where you're weak and they're strong, you look to them, you defer to them in leadership in that area. And you respect them and you, and you appreciate that about the other person. And those of you who are married, think of your friendships so the same way. You respect the other people in areas that you're weak and you conflict with them in areas that you're the same. Why do we do that? Because we're fallen human creatures. And when we're both alike, one of us isn't needed. And that's what cancel culture is all about, isn't it? If you're like me, you're a threat to me, I'm going to cancel you. I'm going to take you out. I'm going to make sure you're insignificant. 
so that only I am the one that benefits from whatever is going on. I think it's interesting we're seeing that in our own culture right now between Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Elon Musk in the political platforms. Twitter against Facebook now, right? Free speech against restricted speech. And Elon's going to open up his, his um, code to everybody so there's no secrets. And meanwhile, Mark Zuckerberg won't open up his code. And Elon's calling him out. Well, what happened when Twitter became, when those two were alike, they didn't compete against each other. It was all, you know, we're all on the same team here. But now that Elon's turned the tables on Twitter, and, and now Facebook is threatened by it because they are shadow posting and all that other stuff that they were accused of. Now it's coming out that's true. Now there's conflict. Now there's competition. And when Christians are like the world, there's no competition. We, we negate ourselves and our message by being like the world. But when we're different, what happens? That's the whole principle behind let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You are a peculiar people. You're weird. Do you know that? Christians are weird to the world. Why? Because we don't think like the world. We don't act like the world. We shouldn't react like the world. We should be different. And when we're different, people are like, huh? That's weird. They're different. Be different on purpose. We don't truly live like Christ completely sold out to Christ. Rather than graciously forgiving one another, we have a tendency to point out how we've been wronged. And we insist those who wronged us need to come to me and make it right. Do you realize that some people have been bitter for so long, the people that offended you have no idea you're offended? I counsel with people like that. They're mad, and then you go talk to the other party, and they're like, I had no idea. That was like 20 years ago. Are you serious? They're still upset? Yeah, they are. Well, I'm not going to go to them after 20 years. They got the problem. Insanity, spin the wheel. Keep doing the same thing over and over. Rather than graciously forgiving one another, we have a tendency to point out how we've been wrong and insist those who've wronged us come and make it right. Listen to Ephesians 4.32. Be kind one towards another, tender-hearted. What's the next phrase? What is the difference? Oh, by the way, there's a comparison here, isn't there? I almost cut the verse off like there was a period after another. What's the rest of the verse? As in Christ, aren't you glad he doesn't not forgive? Aren't you glad he forgives? Not only does he forgive, what, what, what tense is that in? It's already done. He already forgave you before you offended him. Try to make somebody mad who forgives you before you offend them. He knew we were going to mess up. He knew we were going to do wrong. He knew we would rebel against him. And he forgave you before you violated him. So then once you violate him, what's he do? He forgets. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed thine iniquity from you. It's hard to offend somebody when they forgave you before you committed the crime. 
We're called to forgive as Christ forgave. Completely. Totally. By the way, the whole idea here is this. Stop looking for reasons to be offended. We live in a culture that is constantly looking for a reason to be offended. They looked at me weird. They said something. I wonder what they meant by that email. They might have just meant what they said. There's nothing more in it. Wow, they never wrote me an email before. Maybe they went to a sermon. Their pastor said, you should send an email to somebody and try to get reconciliation. So they did that. Now, well, I wonder what they're trying to get across. This guy's probably trying to get me. I haven't heard from them for 20 years. Just saying. Be kind to one another when we're wrong. Be kind to one another when you're hurt. Be kind to one another when you're neglected. We are all called to forgive as Christ forgave. Not when they say we're sorry. Not when they deserve it. Not when they feel bad enough. Not when, they put them in pur- not when we put them in our personal purgatory long enough and they earn their way back out. Which is nowhere in the Bible. We're to give, forgive fully and we're to seek reconciliation. Let me show you a definition about two words here. Forgiveness equals this. I'm not going to hold this against you. That's forgiveness. I'm not going to hold your crime against you. What you did to me, I'm not going to hold that against you. But reconciliation says this. I'm going to, re- I'm going to work to restore the broken relationship. I'm going to do my part. I'm going to forgive and I'm going to let it go. Now, if you're willing to meet me halfway, then, then we're golden. But if I, if I forgive you and, and I desire a relationship and you're not going to let me in, there's not much I can do with that. It is what it is. I am in your purgatory. And the problem is, most of the time when you put people in your purgatory, they don't care. They don't care. And half of them don't even know they're in your purgatory. So who's really in purgatory? Who's really getting the consequence of the decision? The one that thinks they're right is actually the one caught in their own insanity. What does the Bible have to say about that? One way to stay in step with God is to stay in tune with the Holy Spirit. If you want to be in unity with people around you, if you want to be in unity with your family members, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your church community, then Galatians 5.16 is king. This verse has to rule. Let's read it together. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Who who does the flesh look out for? (laughs) There it is. I've been wronged. I deserve more. I get, I, I, I. Remember, what was the question we're supposed to ask? Not what do I want, but what do they, what do they need? Taking my eyes off myself and placing them on other people. Considering others better than myself. So I say, if you're going to walk in the Spirit, then you're not going to be self-absorbed. I would argue this. If you're going to walk in the Spirit, you cannot be self-absorbed. Think of one person who ever was in tune with the Holy Spirit who was self-absorbed. You can think of a lot of people who didn't have the Spirit that were self-absorbed. How about Judas Iscariot? He walked with Christ. He knew Christ. He, he saw the miracles of Christ. He participated in the miracles of Christ. And yet, in the end, who did he look out for? And how'd that happen? What, what happened? 
didn't work out. How about, here, let's take an Old Testament guy. Samson, manly man. Right? When he, got, when he was full of the Holy Spirit, unstoppable. Doing things for other people. Second he started looking at himself, what happened? It was the woman's fault, but no. It was not the woman's fault. It was his fault. He took his eyes off the mission and placed it on himself. And he gratified himself. And after he lost his eyesight, after he lost his girl, after he lost his lifestyle, after he lost everything, he finally is being made fun of standing in a pagan temple between two pillars. And what's he cry out one last time? Fill me with your spirit one last time that I might avenge your name and avenge myself of this enemy of you. And what does God do? He gives it to him. But it's sad that it had to end that way. That, that is a sad story of a man's life, if you really look at it. Did God use him despite that? Sure. But did Samson have so much more potential for God? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I say to you, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your own flesh. When we walk in the Spirit, when we stay in tune with the Spirit, it is so much easier to live in unity with those around us because we all have the Spirit of God. We're all in tune with what the Spirit is. So what is the Spirit in tune with? And, and how should we obtain unity? What, what are the things that are going to bind us together? Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is, let's say them together, love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no... That is my, one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. It's like, we don't even need laws for this. This is like so simply... Duh. You don't need a law to tell you to be kind. You don't need a law to tell you to be gentle. You don't need laws to tell you these things. These are byproducts of somebody walking in the Spirit of God. God doesn't say, thou shalt be kind one towards another. Thou shalt be gentle one towards another. Thou shalt have joy. <laughs> Can you imagine? Ten Commandments that read that way? No, we don't need that. Why? You have the Holy Spirit of God. That's part of who you are. It is your DNA as a Christian. Building unity, healing fault lines is a natural outcome of walking in the Spirit. So let's talk about the corporate level here. I know this sounds great for a marriage or a relationship with kids or family members, but what about the corporate level? Let's talk about that first. How does this affect the church? When you're focused on considering others first, when you make a habit out of forgiveness and reconciliation, it's very difficult to have disunity. Matter of fact, I would argue you have to intentionally try to have disunity. You've got to look to be offended. You've got to be selfish intentionally. You've got to make it about you rather than others in order to break unity when the Holy Spirit is present. Agree or disagree? It's true. It's what the Bible teaches. It's really hard for fault lines to develop and grow beneath the surface when everybody is being real and everybody is praying together and they're being led by the Spirit. The real insurance against fault lines for us is to focus on being in tune with the Holy Spirit. Now, my, my wife plays the bass guitar. Do you, where's your tuner at? Do you have it? Let me see that real quick. 
this little device is kind of a cool device. How many ever used a tuner before? Anybody ever use a tuner? So like I can turn it on and I can C sharp. That's why I'm not on the worship team. Um, yikes. Maybe you're, maybe it's wrong. Surely it's wrong. It can't be me, right? No. So this can tell me what note a guitar is doing or you're whistling. It'll tell me what individual note it is, right? It's great. So if I want to tune, when I play my guitar, if I want to tune to the, the first string to E, I grab my guitar, I begin to tune it, and I tune it until this turns the letter E and the needle straight up and down. But what, now what happens if Christy tunes her guitar to this one, and I take my guitar, and I got a built-in tuner on mine, it's kind of fancy, right? See it there, lighten up? And what if I tune mine to G? We're both in, or E, what if we both go to E? She's at E and I'm at E, are we together? in theory, right? But now I call Rachel and say, Rachel, why don't you play E on the piano? And, and she's tuned on a different tuner. The piano tuner comes like twice, three times a year, tunes a piano, and he tunes letter E to E, right? His E. So now we have Chrissy's E, we have the piano's E, we have my E, and then I think Kathy has a built-in one too on her guitar here. Yep, and hers is still on. Um, Oh no, she's plugged in, that's why. So she's got a tuner too, and we all tune to E. Are we all playing E? Are we all playing the same E? No. And when a band would tune to everybody's own personal tuner, it sounds great individually. But what happens when you put all those instruments together? How many have ever gone to an orchestra and heard the violin play the lone note? And then all of a sudden you hear the chaos right behind that lone note, right? What is that chaos? What are they doing? They're tuning. And they're tuning to what? They're tuning to her or him. They're tuning to the violin. So everybody's got the same E. And when everybody's got the same E, now what used to be chaos sounds what? Beautiful and in sync. They're all doing the same thing. They all got the same potential. But individually, if they're tuning to different, different instruments, I'm tuning myself to somebody else, or I'm tuning myself to something else, or I'm tuning this. What if we all tuned to the Holy Spirit of God together? What would happen? What would the church be like? Rather than tuning ourselves to what we think it should be tuned to, what if we tuned to the Holy Spirit's channel? What would happen in the church? By the way, tuning forks is what they use most of the time to tune that first violin too, isn't it? Behind, backstage, they took a tuning fork, bing! Got that violin in, once that was in, everybody tunes off of that and they're all the same. There's a standard. For Christians to see unity in churches and for Christians to have unity one with another, the tuning fork Ding, is the Holy Spirit of God. When we walk in the Spirit, we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Let me show you this on a personal level too then. On a personal level, where do you need to start building unity? Well, number one, develop a habit of considering others' needs ahead of your own wants. 
Ask the question, what do they need and how can I help? Do you need to go to somebody and seek forgiveness or offer forgiveness? Have you stuck somebody in your personal purgatory and they're not even aware they're in there? Set them free. Be over it. Get over it. Get out of your own way. Humble yourselves. Do the work of reconciliation. Are you personally in tune with the Holy Spirit? Are you pursuing love and joy and peace, forbearance, kindness, gentleness, faithness, self-control? On a corporate level, where can I build up others and encourage others to be part of what we're doing as a church? Are you working towards building unity in the church? Or are you pulling people away? Are you, you making a different note out there that others can tune to rather than tuning to the Spirit? Finally, let's not miss out on the power and the benefit of coming together in a fellowship and communion with other believers. In the book of Acts, in the early church, we see absolutely they were devoted together. Go to Acts chapter 2 with me. I want to read this passage in closing. You can't get any earlier in the church age than Acts 2, right? It's the birth of the church. And out of that birth of the church, there's so many different people groups coming together. And what's bonding them together? The Holy Spirit of God. And in chapter 2, looking, starting at verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. These people and these groups who had immense differences... Yet still, in the same power of the Holy Spirit, the bond of Christ, they're able to come together, they're able to eat together, pray together, worship together, do life together. How do they do that? They had the Holy Spirit. So let's make a commitment to the local fellowship. Be devoted to the church. Be devoted to community. Be devoted to Christ. Because becoming a community of one, united in Christ, is God's will for His church. And when a church comes together... They impact their culture like nothing else can. You can try to regulate Christianity. You can try to, try to pass laws to, to make people moral. But when people are transformed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they want to be different on purpose. You can't make a law on that. It's a natural outflow of a Spirit-filled life. Do you have that? Do you want that? It's there for the taking. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your will, I think, or your word, and I thank you, Father, that your will is not that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And Father, we live in a very broken, fallen world. We have broken relationships even inside the church. And Father, we live in a time period where critical spirits are all over the place. And Father, we need a group of people who are different on purpose. We need your church in the culture today. We need your people who are called by your name to humble themselves and to pray and to speak and to give forth the word in a community and a culture which is so hungry for truth today. They don't even know what truth is until they hear the truth of Jesus Christ. And then you usually hear something to this effect. How come nobody's ever told me this? Father, help us to be the truth tellers. 
Help us to look for others and ways that we can help them, ways that they can benefit at our expense. And Father, help us to heal the relationships in our own lives because we will be completely ineffective in your cause until we forgive those who have offended us and we let go of the things that hold us back from selling out to you. And Father, if, if on this Mother's Day nothing happens other than restored relationships among family members, friends, and co-workers, then Father, praise you that that's enough. But Father, I know that there's a greater desire that you have today. And that is for your people to live the way that you want them to live. To fix the relationships and then to share the hope that's in them with others who need to hear. And Father, your church is never stronger than when it's on its knees and it's humbled. And Lord, we need humility in the church today. We need a desire not to be right, but a desire to share and help others who are in need. And Father, as we help those who are in need, you give us the opportunity to speak truth into their lives. So Father, I pray that you would grow the ministry of this church. You would grow the ministry of each believer here. And Father, if there are relationships in our lives that are messed up, Father, I pray, for number one, that we would forgive them before we ever talk to them. And then, Father, I pray that we would seek reconciliation, that we would not hold the offense anymore. And Father, if they're willing to work it out, then great. And if they're not, Lord, I pray that we would not be held captive by somebody else because we have been freed in you. And Father, when we confess and forsake, we're forgiven. And if others won't forgive, then, then that's their problem, not ours. We want a relationship with them. We're, we're ready to reconcile with them. But Father, it's impossible to do if, you're not, if, if forgiveness is not reciprocated. So Father, we can, we can forgive and help us to forgive. But Father, you want more than forgiveness. You want reconciliation. So Father, I pray that we would fix the relationships in our lives that are broken, the ones that we can fix. And Lord, the ones that we can't, that we cast them to your feet. And Lord, there's, there's family members I pray for on a regular basis, Lord, that need you for salvation. There's others that have gone astray and they need restoration. They need you to, Father, to bring them back to you. And Father, then there's the family members who we're doing a lot of things right, but there's still areas in which we fall short of your glory. And Father, I praise you for 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Father, I pray whatever the needs are in the room as we sing these last two songs together, that Father, we would take the time where we are and, and just take a moment, bow our head, close our eyes, and Lord, give to you whatever we need to give. Maybe it's forgiveness to others. I love in the Lord's Prayer, Father, how you say that we are to forgive others. As we forgive others, you will forgive us. As we forgive others their trespasses, so you will forgive us of our trespasses. So Father, I pray that we would understand what is being asked of you. And that, Father, we would make a short account of the offenses and we make big the reconciliation. And Father, thank you for not being offended by us, but through your great love towards us, while we were still sinning, you sent your son to die for us. And Father, if there's somebody here that needs a relationship with you, maybe somebody watching online needs a relationship with you, Father, I pray that they would look up Romans 10, 9, and 10, and they would simply do what it says there. If we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be saved. And Father, I pray that it's, it is that, that easy, and yet it's so hard. 
So hard to humble ourselves. So hard to surrender to you and allow you to be Lord. Father, help us to do the work that needs to be, or to do the things that need to be done to receive your blessing today. In your name we pray and all God's people said.